Good morning and welcome to Health Watch. I'm Dr. David Naiman, your host. Is it possible that some people catch mental illness? In other words, could some significant subset of people with schizophrenia, bipolar, anorexia, OCD, or depression have the cause of their mental illness traced back to an infectious disease, a virus, a bacteria, or a parasite? Today's guest, Harriet Washington, thinks so. A medical ethicist and writer, Harriet Washington, is a Shearing Fellow at the University of Nevada's Black Mountain Institute, a former research fellow in medical ethics at Harvard Medical School, and the author of Medical Apartheid, which won the 2007 National Book Critics Circle Award. She's here today on Health Watch to talk about her latest book, Infectious Madness, The Surprising Science of How We Catch Mental Illness. Welcome to Health Watch, Harriet Washington. Thank you so much, David. I'm very pleased to be here. So why don't we just start with how you started on this path of investigating a relationship between infections and an increased risk of mental illness? Well, initially it was sheer serendipity. One thing happened a very long time ago, but it always stuck in my mind. I had encountered a patient on the floor who... um, was mentally ill clearly in fact he was dramatically had dramatic brain damage uh devastating neurological um symptoms that culminated in eventually being confined to bed but he had lost his memory he couldn't no longer speak and it turned out according to the lore from the aides who carried them they said well this is a man who had um paresis and i didn't think there were any paresis sufferers left paresis used to be a very common mental disorder and it's not common anymore because at one point it was discovered that it was caused by syphilis we don't see paresis in this country anymore because people with syphilis are now treated with penicillin before they can it can develop to the stage where paresis develops in the in the developing world though paresis is very common so I always remembered that, and then I came across an Italian medical journal article in which a researcher tried to link Borna virus, which is more common in Central Europe than it is here, to um, schizophrenia. And I thought, oh, I've heard of this before, mental illnesses being traced to infection. Then I began thinking about more common or more familiar mental illnesses that we know are caused by infection, like rabies, for example. And it struck me that... We actually have knowledge of these diseases, but we don't tend to approach them in this way. We simply don't think of them as as diseases caused by infection, but some of them have been familiar to us for a while, and others, the evidence is just now evolving from human studies. Well, it's interesting that you, in Infectious Madness, uh, talk to a variety of experts, and and there seems to be some general agreement that perhaps 10 to 15% of mental illnesses are caused by an infectious agent. Is Is that right? That's exactly right. And with one um, very um, eminent, you know, outsider, there's one outlier. One person thinks that up to 85% of certain illnesses are um, caused by infection. Uh, and But he's the outlier. Everybody else agreed on that figure. However, trying to pin them down was fruitless. I kept trying to ask them, well, how do you know this? You know, what studies point to this? But when they supplied studies, they were all over the place because, of course, the studies varied very differently in their methodology and in the disease they looked at and in their recruitment. So there was no no real way of comparing these studies. And so I thought, then why are you all independently coming up with 10 to 15%? And finally they began admitting 
it's just our judgment. You know, it's basically an educated guess, but an educated guess based on decades sometimes of looking at these diseases and, and teasing out in many studies what the prevalence of infection was. Well, you, you mentioned schizophrenia and possible, um, uh, possible exposure to a virus, increasing the risk of it. Um, you also talk about how pregnant women, when they get the flu, um, their offspring have an increased risk of schizophrenia, and likewise, there may be an increased risk of schizophrenia uh, if you're exposed to toxoplasma, the parasite in cats. Are, are all of these pathways just different um, uh, pathways to the same result, or is there a different mechanism that happens with each of them that might lead to an elevated risk of schizophrenia, for instance? For schizophrenia, well, it depends on the disorder. For schizophrenia, it seems to be, as you stated, the mechanism rather than a specific um, agent. Um, not all infectious agents have the kind of schizophrenia, but a large number have. Um, the common flu, uh, Toxoplasma gondii, a parasite ca carried by common house cats. Uh, even herpes simplex is tied to an increased prevalence of schizophrenia. Um, in pregnant women. So it seems to be what the virus does to the bodies of the woman and her child rather than any um, specific action of the virus or the infective agent. Now, in other diseases, that seems not to be the case because, you know, some viruses, some bacteria, and even, you know, other pathogens, sometimes they target particular areas of the body and some target the brain. So sometimes, it, depending on the illness, it is indeed and it, a particular um, infective agent. And in other cases, like schizophrenia, it seems to be how it affects the immune system. You know, it, when the mother is infected, there is a vigorous immune response, but a fetus in utero doesn't have much protection against it, and it actually may be harmed by the mother's antigens, by the mother's immune response, rather than by the... Um, directly by the agent itself. That's something that is still being looked at. They haven't come to a determination on that. There's no agreement there. But the majority of people in general um, of having an increased risk of mental illness from an infectious agent are young children, infants, and fetuses versus um, fully developed adults. Is that because of the, the still developing central nervous system in, in younger people? Yes, and also because of the still-developing immune system. When you look at younger people, um, toddlers, for example, infants, definitely fetus and neural, you're looking at immune system sometimes has a very strong response, but the immune system cells have not yet been trained to differentiate between an enemy attacker. And so you have a florid response that could end up injuring parts of the, of the child's own brain. And yes, that's more likely to happen with people with a compromised immune system, including that of the very young. The other end of the spectrum, though, is that in the elderly, you have people whose immune systems are changing dramatically and winding down with age. So there are cases in which they, too, can be particularly vulnerable. But the difference is when you have um, damage to the system of a young child, you can cause subtle changes that don't manifest themselves for years, as schizophrenia does. Um, there's a chance that schizophrenics who tend to be diagnosed um, in very late adolescence, early adulthood. Um, this could be a result of brain damage that happened when they were toddlers. But with the elderly, you already have an intact um, nervous system. So it will affect them differently. Um, it's much more, it's more time limited. It's more, it's more time limited. It's not likely to result in, you know, the kind of, you know, global problems that you're going to see in a very young kid whose um, brain has been, you know, 
has perhaps been damaged by, you know, early assaults. In case you just tuned in, we're talking today to Harriet Washington about her latest book, Infectious Madness, The Surprising Science of How We Catch Mental Illness. Uh, Harriet, you talk about a, a syndrome called PANDAS in Infectious Madness, which is uh, controversial, but also leading to some potentially interesting insights about a variety of illnesses. Can, can you talk to us a little bit about PANDAS, what it is, and sure. what the controversy is? Well, you know, it's controversial, but the controversy is always an interesting word. Most new, um, most new paradigms, most new theories, um, they're new, they're certainly not refined, and they're not generally accepted. I mean, that's expected. That's the way science works. So in that sense, it's controversial. It's not controversial in the sense that uh, the science is alleged to be poor or somehow suspect. The, um, I, the theory behind PANDAS is that the very common um, group A streptococcal infections that a lot of us get, strep throat is probably the most familiar one, when they, when they attack young children, or, you know, even older adolescents. But when they attack um, young people, as I said, their brains and nervous systems are not yet fully developed. So they will have a florid response trying to get rid of this pathogen, trying to quell this infection. But this, but this strong response sometimes results in injuring parts of the child's own nervous system. And that's, what, that's the theory behind PANDAS, that when children have repeated sore throats, for example, strep throats, the um, antibodies will actually damage part of the child's nervous system, and as a result, the child develops almost overnight diseases like obsessive-compulsive disorder, Tourette syndrome, um, even anorexia, anorexia. And there are several hallmarks that differentiate between children who develop these um, conditions on their own, like most children do. You know, most cases of Tourette are not due to pandas. In fact, PANDAS is supposed to be invoked only when you have a case of OCD or Tourette's or anorexia that you cannot explain via the normal etiology. So it's only considered in those cases where a normal course of events would not explain it. And again, one of the hallmarks is that it happens overnight. You don't see that in normal cases of Tourette's, for example. But when you have a child who has been um, shown no symptoms of mental illness, and over a very short space of time, he begins exhibiting pronounced OCD symptoms. They tend to regress also in other ways. Um, children who have been acting appropriately for their age will seem to revert to being toddlers. Even their fine motor skills, their handwriting will deteriorate. And these are not normally hallmarks of these disorders. That's when the scientists will um, suspect pandas. And again, you know, it's a result of what I call friendly fire. Your immune system is overreacting, or perhaps just reacting very inaccurately, and it ends up doing more damage to your own nervous system than it does to the pathogen that it's trying to route. Well, I'm sure we have listeners who are concerned hearing this for, with such common conditions like the flu and strep throat, potentially in some minority of cases leading to uh, mental illness. Um, what are some of the things that people can do, if anything? Are there some treatments or prevention uh, strategies? They feel that can be done. In fact, I always stress that, of course, it sounds scary. But from my vantage point, this is actually a good thing. When you consider that for some common devastating mental disorders like schizophrenia, in most cases, we don't know what's caused it. So we can't try to prevent it. 
And most people with schizophrenia do not get appropriate treatment. Actually, it's probably fairer to say close to half the people in this country with schizophrenia don't get adequate treatment. And there is, of course, no cure, um, certainly no prevention. So now we're talking about something for which we may have preventive steps, and that's a good thing. So, um, and they're simple. The same things mom told you to do to avoid infection, those are the things that are very important here. Um, if, it, as it turns, if, it, if it turns out, as it seems to, turn, to be, that influenza is indeed an important trigger, then getting an annual flu shot becomes even that much more important. You know, we have, you know, we have a vaccine against the flu. Also, things like, and we, we need to use it, also very simple public health preventative steps that everyone knows that we should do and we don't always do, wash our hands carefully, especially before preparing food because not only the influenza virus, but toxoplasma and some other pathogens that are linked to mental illness are caused by tainted food. They can easily taint food, and if it's not cooked correctly, and if you don't wash your hands before preparing food, then you can fall victim to them. So, you know, washing your hands, um, getting your flu shot, taking steps to, you know, minimize your contact with infection and infectious people. And, of course, I talk in the book about more... um, Uh, more profound things that we can do. For example, hospital redesign is something people are already looking at. You know, when infectious diseases were rampant and we had no antibiotics, um, there's a lot of attention paid to designing hospitals in ways to try to minimize exposure, having negative airflow, things like that. And these are all things that we have already begun to revisit and we should do so vigorously. So the bottom line is a lot can be done. And although there is um, not a vaccine, or not treatment for a lot of these um, infections, the reality is sometimes prevention is even more important than treatment. Because even if we could treat, say, Toxoplasma gondii, the fact is the damage might already be done. By the time you acquire the illness and get sick, even if you have a treatment, um, your, your neurons might already be damaged. So preventing them can in some ways be better than treating it. Well, one of the other things that I really enjoyed about infectious madness is the sort of interrogation of the of the mind body duality there's a, with this growing sense of a relationship between infectious disease and mental illness and between viruses and bacteria and parasites and human behavior it kind of points to this mind body model and contemporary medicine being outdated can you talk yes. a little bit further about that certainly you know it's very interesting it's very easy when you look at history of medicine and when you look at medical theory, it's very easy to confuse medical facts with habits of thought. And in large part, this dividing line between the mind and the body is a habit of thought. There isn't a lot of good science to support it. And increasingly, we're learning more and more about diseases that carry characteristics of both um, damage to the mind and damage to the body. I really don't think it's unusual that mental illness should be a result of um, infection because it's not unusual for um, pathogens to uh, to um, cause diseases that have both psychological and physical symptoms. It's just that we tend to focus on one to the exclusion of the other. So this um, regimentation of diseases into either mental or physical is largely a fiction. And I think at one point, I talk in the book about the political uses of it. Doctors found it very useful during the period when they were trying to take over control of asylums from religious groups. 
because they wanted to establish that this was a medical model, something that only they had expertise in. And so it was very useful to say these diseases are definitely physical. But, you know, there's also um, just, again, a long habit of thought that we really need to abandon. Some cultures have not had this. Some cultures have always recognized the duality here. And I think that the the clearer we are and the more rigorous we are in determining when something is not only physical or mental but both, the better off we will be. You know, there's not always, it's not always binary. You don't always have to choose. And when we recognize the the psychological and mental as well as the physical costs of some illnesses, I think we're going to do a much better job of addressing them, both in terms of prevention and in terms of treatment. Well, even if we put aside the issue of infectious disease and mental illness, there are many physical diseases that cause mental uh, symptoms, like low thyroid causing depression or asthma often being associated with anxiety, that it seems like we're ignoring that there's quite a spectrum and bleed over from from mental to physical in, in many, many conditions. Absolutely. That's absolutely true. You've also written about the research on tropical diseases and how they've undermined um, intellectual development in countries with poor health care. And I would imagine that might even have some some, uh, relevance in the United States in areas where people don't have the same quality of health care as in other areas, Uh, what you call neglected tropical diseases. Sorry. Yes, it has a great deal of relevance in the United States, and especially because this is another case of habits of thought. We we call these tropical diseases, and indeed they're they're most visible in developing countries. But the reality is, I in my article for the American Scholar in which I discuss this, the reality is the U.S. has a climate. Parts of the U.S. have a climate very near the climate of the countries where these diseases are rampant. And now we're seeing these diseases in the U.S. because of our climate. It's very hot and it's getting warmer. And so now we're seeing these diseases that we've always thought of as these exotic tropical diseases. In Texas is now the epicenter for something called Chagas disease, a horrible disease. Um, you know, the schistosomiasis, a whole bevy of these diseases that we've only thought about as happening in the tropics, but we're actually seeing them in warm parts of the U.S., and we're going to see them more and more. After Hurricane um, Katrina, there's a prevalence of snails that carry um, a disease called schistosomiasis, which doctors at first were, you know, in denial about. They said people in the U.S. don't get this disease, but they were seeing it everywhere. So um, these are diseases that threaten all of us, and the medical interdependence, I think, is really important. Unfortunately, I hate to even say this, but because we now are seeing these diseases in the U.S., I think it is going to drive an increased urgency, and we're going to look a little harder for cures and treatments and preventive aspects, and that will be good for us in the U.S., and it will also be good for people in the developing world. Um, Well, it seems like it is. um, These are conditions that are going to disproportionately affect uh, people of lower income and people of color, I would imagine. Yes, in large part, because, you know, on the one hand, we think of um, pathogens as being democratic, right? You don't think of infections as targeting poor people or people of color, but in reality, they do. And they're not sure exactly all the reasons why this is so, but some of the reasons are very straightforward. Chagas disease is actually caused by a very nasty bug. You know, a literal 
little insect, and it lives in the cracks of substandard housing. So if you have housing that's not terribly clean, but more importantly, is not very sealed, open to the elements, um, and has lots of nooks and crannies like old housing, it loves that. So people who suffer from Chagas are going to be more likely to people who live in that substandard, you know, shabbily built housing. And then there's, you know, there's a question of nutrition and other, and other issues. But then there, I think there will also be some diseases that turn out to be more democratic. And because, you know, not every infection um, is stratified that way. So in general, you're absolutely right. But I think in particular, we may actually see some of these diseases become more prevalent in the middle class. And that's just my theory. I haven't actually found other scientists to say that. They're, they're not really given to predicting that kind of thing anyway. But um, I think there's a good chance that although most of the people will be poor people of color, that um, there will also be other people who are affected in the U.S. And, and how reliable do you think the studies are on, on, on infectious disease, tropical diseases, and human intelligence when they're using a parameter like IQ, which certainly is, is a controversial measurement of intelligence when it's going across cultures? Yeah, I don't think of IQ as being controversial. I think of it as frankly flawed. IQ works well when you're looking at wealthy Western countries because it tends to measure the kind of things that are done frequently in Western countries. There's a lot of evidence that IQ measures not ability, but it measures activities, mental activities that are improved through repetition. And so if you're, if you're measuring people in the West who are um, frequently doing things like mathematical computations, you know, every day, I mean, simple ones, right, uh, making change, that sort of thing, um, then it's going to accurately measure it. But if you take that same measure and you go to Nigeria and deal with people who have a very different economy, who don't see perhaps money from one year to the next, um, and then ask a test that sort of predicates, you know, some familiarity with, you know, managing money or managing, small, uh, managing numbers, you're not going to get an accurate measure. The measures... Um, the measures simply aren't accurate when you take them out of the U.S. Also, there are a lot of fiction around IQ. You know, one of the biggest fictions that the hereditarians, the people who say that it's hereditary, um, uh, depend on is they say, well, it's genetic and it's passed on from generation to generation. That means that you can't increase IQ. And for them, I, in my opinion, it's a handy argument because if your claim is that you can't increase IQ, then there's no need to then you don't, you don't entertain suggestions that we should invest money in increasing it, right? It can't be done. But the reality, you know, the studies show us something different. In Kenya, IQ points rose 14 points over a very short period of time when people's health was improved. You know, they weren't different intellectually. Uh, they weren't differently genetically in, for, in the short period of time, but their health improved. And then their IQ went up. So IQ, we don't know what IQ measures, but it's certainly not raw intelligence. It's right. measuring something different. And, and, and lastly today, Harriet, how, how is infectious madness being received in the medical world? Is, are you getting a lot of pushback, or has is, is this been a welcome reception from your colleagues? 
Yes, you know, I've been very, um, very happy that the experts in the field, the people whose opinion I cared about the most, uh, the people who do this sort of work, the neuroscientists, uh, and not just the ones I spoke to. There was one in particular who I really wanted to interview, and I couldn't do it because his schedule was so busy. I didn't get to talk to him until after the book was essentially finished. And he, he raved about it, which made me very happy. They have praised not only um, the accuracy of the book, but they have praised the scope um, because I not only describe things that, for which there's hard data, I also describe things that are more speculative but are important avenues for research, important avenues for things that we should get more information about. Like, for example, how is the fear of infection tied to our um, penchant for violence? You know, why a lot of stranger violence? Why do we have stranger violence that coincides with maps of infection? That sort of thing. And they praised that. I was a little nervous about that. I didn't know how well that would be received, but they were very happy. What's interesting to me is that the um, experts in the field um, have said glowing things about the nuance of the book as well as its factual, factual nature. But it's the lay reviewers who occasionally, in like two occasions I can think of, who seem to have some difficulty understanding basic things I said in the book. For example, there was a review in the New York Times yesterday that surprised me. Because the reviewer seemed, the reviewer wrote that I was claiming that infection causes mental illness, period. And I thought, that's interesting. In the first few pages, I specified that it's 10 to 15%. And I talk about all the other fact, factors, genetics, you know. It, ma- it makes you wonder factors. whether they read the book. I, that was my first thought. How yeah. could you have read the book and not understood that? <clears throat> and one of the review did the same thing. They seemed to, they wrote as if I was claiming that only infection. And I found that really surprising. I couldn't figure out whether they hadn't read the book or perhaps whether this uh, duality of mind, this like habit of thought I've, I've talked about, sometimes hampers some people's understanding. You know, they, some people are <coughs> tied to a binary view of things, like it has to be either or, either infection or psychosocial. They don't understand that it can be both. And of course, I said clearly it was both, so it was a little surprising. Do you have a website you could point our listeners to? <coughs> Please excuse me. No, I'm working on it. Okay. I have to admit, things have been very busy, and I should have had it up by now. Well, it's it was perfect. a pleasure talking to you today, Harriet, and I hope people go out and get Infectious Madness. It's, it's definitely a really uh, interesting and provocative read. Thank you so much. I really enjoyed talking to you, Dave. Thank you for having me on we, your show. We were talking today with medical ethicist and writer Harriet Washington, the author of Infectious Madness, The Surprising Science of How We Catch Mental Illness. I'm Dr. David Naiman, your host, and this has been Health Watch.